we're thrilled to have Paul uh, here today. You know, um, history is always a mess, and the history of spirits and drinking <laughs> is particularly uh, hard to follow and, and full of unreliable things. When um, the way Long Now thinks about, uh, uh, about futurism and history is all on one kind of continuum of uh, if we look at predicting and thinking about the future, um, if we're um, and, and rigorously looking at the past are together, but actually paying attention in the moment to what's going on today uh, is the route to both good futurism and good histories. And Paul uh, has been paying attention to spirits and cocktails in this country in a way more seriously, uh, one of the first ones to really take seriously what was happening. Um, so again, he's gonna be taking us through that continuum on, on spirits and cocktail uh, into the future and from the past. So big round of applause for our guest tonight, Paul Clark. Excellent, thank you. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Before I get started, uh, I have a brief confession to make. I don't actually have a crystal ball. Um, despite the name of the session, co the cocktail crystal ball, you know, I toyed around with the idea of actually like purchasing one online, going to Amazon or something, and bring, on, bring in one just for visual aid. But the uh, consumer reviews on those things are terrible. Uh, they're notoriously unreliable, so I decided to, to save the cash and, and uh, bring it down here uh, and spin it at the bar. Um, as, as Michael said, I've been doing this for a while. I, I started writing about cocktails uh, professionally about 10 years ago and had been dabbling with it personally for several years before that. Um, really as the cocktail renaissance or cocktail revolution or whatever you want to call it, uh, was just starting to, to pick up steam and just starting to, to get some energy behind it. Um, and so it seems like a long time to me, and I'm one of those people who really gets hooked on uh, kind of milestones and markers and looking back uh, at, at, you know, my God, what have I done with the last 10 years of my life? Uh, but when you think about it, you know, 10 years is, is just that merest uh, little heartbeat of a, of a of a firefly uh, in, in the great scheme of things and even in the great scheme of cocktails, which has a history that doesn't go back nearly as far uh, as, as human evolution, even though you know, I'm sure that there were some of our um, prehistoric ancestors who badly needed a drink. Um, but uh, it, it does have a very long history and we're at only a certain milestone in that history. We live in a time when cocktail creativity and cocktail innovation is at a particularly vivid point, uh, but we're only at one point on that timeline. So when we're talking about coming down here and, and doing this, we thought it would be fun to play around with the idea of looking at that long arc of cocktail history and 
where, what's come before us, what kind of signs and tips does it give us for what's coming ahead, and what does it look like that we're going to be drinking, uh, let's say, 100 years from now? What, what's the cocktail in your class going to look like? Is it going to be something, you know, kind of like the Jetsons of cocktails, you know, looking for your flying car of cocktails? Uh, is it going to be Soylent Green? Uh, or is it going to be something that's very much related and not too dissimilar from what you have uh, in your glass right now? Um, so we're going to kind of tease those threads out uh, here for a little bit. Um, now, of course, you've got to start at the beginning for, for any story. And the beginning of the cocktail really starts uh, several hundred years ago before the cocktail had even uh, developed. The primordial soup of the cocktail was served in the punch bowl. Uh, the punch bowl was that vessel through which for centuries during the age of exploration, uh, people would spend their time and, and days and, and, and uh, uh, relaxing with each other and socializing with each, other, with each other over the mixtures that they're putting in the punch bowl. The punch bowl was that formative place where we uh, worked through some of the rough forms that would later evolve into the cocktail. We, we found certain things that would resonate later on, for example, that brandy really loves uh, to be put together with oranges and with sugar, or that rum really benefits from being put together with limes. And some of those lessons were first learned uh, in, in the punch bowl during, the, during that age of exploration and leading up to uh, the settlement of the new world and during those first uh, decades of the settlement of the new world. But when you look at the paleoanthropology of the cocktail, uh, the cocktail marked a distinct step in the evolution of how we drink, not just in, in terms of what we actually put into a glass and the ingredients that go into the glass and the way that we prepare that, but it marked a very significant step in the way that we think about uh, ourselves, the way we think about our culture, and the way that we live our lives. Um, fittingly, while the punch bowl was the, the ruler of the drinks world for centuries, uh, that was largely at a time when um, the world was uh, being determined by, primarily by European powers. Um, the cocktail is very much at home in the new world, and, we're, and it fits very much in, 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 uh, uh, in the heart of our, of our character and uh, of the new world's approach. Uh, it, was, it was particularly fertile terrain for the development of the cocktail. So before we get into some of the particulars of what these early cocktails look like and the way that they kind of mark those evolutionary steps and set us up for, for what we've come, it's helpful to look at a few patterns. What were a few things that existed in the new world that made this fertile terrain for that and that have driven the path of the cocktail to the point where we are now and they give us some clues for where we may be going in the future. Well, first off, uh, of course, you had uh, cultural shifts. Um, you know, at the time that the Republic was born, uh, you had the stirrings of the Industrial Revolution. You had people who were uprooted and, and coming to a new place and starting new enterprises and building new cities and, and you know, going out and, and manifesting their destiny uh, and uh, exploring this, this new country. It, it meant reducing the amount of leisure time, the time that was typically spent for hours around a punch bowl, playing cards, playing games, uh, other kinds of sporting endeavors. Now we fill that role with much tighter time frames. Uh, a, a drink was something that you lingered over for a matter of minutes rather than a matter of hours. And it fit very much in, in character with that faster, tighter, more efficient uh, mode that the, that the United States was suggesting soon after the birth of the Republic. Um, you also had that, that uh, the, the 
the melting pot idea of, of the Americas, where the old world was tradition bound. Um, your father was a pig farmer, his father was a pig farmer before him, and so on back, several generations of pig farmers in your family, and uh, so was, is your future as well. But if you're picked up, uprooted from that pig farm uh, in Germany and placed in the new world, you're placed in New York or Boston, all of a sudden you see a future that is possibly devoid of pig shit. Um, and so some of those old patterns, some of those old traditions that you'd been bound to no longer apply to you. So some of those patterns factored into not only the way that we live our everyday lives and the way that we pursue our careers and our businesses, but also in the way that we drank. Um, we were free to, to develop our own traditions. Your pig farmer father may have had an ale every day at lunch and an ale every day at dinner and half a dozen ales in the evening, uh, as did your grandfather and your great-grandfather and generations before that. You may enjoy ale, nothing against ale, but in your new life, in the new world, you might feel like a whiskey. You, might, you, you are not constrained by the way that your family had always done things over the pattern of generations. Um, we also, you also saw that mixture, the melting pot mixture in the United States where you, all of a sudden uh, you could go into establishment and you would have Dutch gin uh, up against French brandy or uh, a whiskey from Pennsylvania or from Maryland or maybe there's a peach brandy from Georgia or some Applejack from New Jersey. Um, and all of these things appearing together, uh, again, in a way that was relatively unfamiliar or had not been widespread uh, in the old world in the centuries before it. So basically, the old rules were off, and every, everything was possible uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. Also setting the stage for the development of the cocktail and the growth of the cocktail over the course of the 19th century were technological changes, um, the evolution of distillation itself. In, uh, at the end of the 18th century, there, I've seen one estimate where there were uh, around 400 distilleries in the state of New Jersey alone. A lot of these were very small scale farm distilleries, um, very small capacity where you would distill your apple crop and maybe that of your neighbors. Uh, and that was a very common farm practice for, for generations and generations. At the beginning of the 19th century, that started to change around about that time, uh, owing to excise taxes, uh, owing to eventual co consolidation of the industry. And we saw this play out over the course of the 19th century of that huge number of distilleries suddenly plummet to a smaller number over the course of the century um, and become much more concentrated and much more focused. This was also kind of coinciding with the technological development in distillation. The coffee still or the continuous, uh, the continuous column still was patented in 1830. Um, this was, you know, again, one of those significant technological leaps away from the traditional uh, pot still that was, you know, that could make lovely, lovely spirits, but was relatively slow, relatively inefficient to operate. Um, now, you could operate, you could make spirits on a much larger scale, much faster, and really make it on an industrial level. And that was kind of one of those ticks to, you know, to start changing the gears and uh, accelerating the whole process of the, the, the evolution of the cocktail. Um, and that wasn't the only technology, of course, that was coming into play. Um, when the New World was first settled, a lot of the spirits, you know, you, you, you drank locavore not by choice, but because you really had no other, you, you really had nothing else available. Um, if you didn't feel like drinking pumpkin beer and pumpkins were the only thing that grew in your area, then you were going dry. Um, 
you know, we did have some imports from Europe, but typically those were for uh, the wealthier who could who could uh, afford French wines or French brandies. Um, for the most part, people were drinking local. Uh, Early, early in the 19th century and accelerating uh, with the introduction of things like the Transcontinental Railroad um, and the uh, introduction of the steamship, we started to see those spirits, al along with every other sort of manufactured item, traveling around the country, moving from one place to another, including bringing more things over from Europe and them being distributed further across the country than just simply in the seaports where they were. So then you, you, it was not unusual to find um, in the mid 19th century to go to a saloon in say uh, Colorado or in uh, the gold digs in Nevada and find an Italian liqueur or to find a Dutch gin in that bar. Um, it was something that was not only considered essential to a saloon but it was relatively available. It was, it was possible to, to access these things. So in that way, the technology was, uh, uh, was helping spread these ingredients around and along with the knowledge of, of what to use with them. Along with this, both technological, technologically driven as well as uh, other factors of economics and culture, we had evolution of spirits themselves. Um, take gin, for example. Gin you know, originated uh, in the Netherlands and in Belgium uh, sometime you know, as early as the 13th century, no later than the 16th century. Um, the English quite literally went crazy for the stuff. Um, and uh, you know, the, the gin craze led to uh, massive, uh, uh, not only economic, but also political tumult uh, in England, as well as the, the uh, appropriation of the style for their own spirits. So you saw the development from the classic kind of malty, rich Yennefer, uh Dutch-style gins along the, the timeline into the 19th century with the rise of sweeter, somewhat drier Old Tom gins, and then ultimately with things like Plymouth gin and London Dry. Um, also with... Um, uh, look at whiskey. You know, uh, whiskey was one of those stories again of you know working locally, um, taking the the technology for making a traditionally barley based distillate uh, in Scotland and Ireland, and using the grains that you had available, which in the New World were things like rye or corn, um, and then of course you know the whiskey as they were making it then wasn't necessarily similar to, to the whiskey that we think of it now or the whiskey that you taste now. Um, in addition to the changes in distillation technology, we had uh, changes in maturation. Were you actually aging in oak barrels? Were they toasted oak barrels? Were they used oak barrels? Were they charred oak barrels? Or were there no oak barrels at all? Um, also, was there anything added to the whiskey? It wasn't until really the turn of the 20th century um, that we really got on top of uh, the additives going into whiskey. Sometimes additives going into whiskey in the 19th century could be things uh, fairly innocent, like maybe you would put tea or prunes in there to make it a little bit darker color, give a little bit richer flavor. Um, or it could be a little bit more suspect, like uh, putting a little spike of kerosene in there to give it a little angle. Um, or, uh, or putting tobacco in, again, for, for the same kind of coloration aspect, but that would also kind of give you a little edge uh, when you drank it. Um, Ultimately, by the turn of the 20th century, that was one of those marking points and the evolution of that, uh, that again, dictated what was going into our glasses. Uh, and rum as well. I mean, rum, uh, for much of its history, was fairly rough stuff. You know, rums, one of rum's first, um, 
common names, I guess, was Kill Devil, which tells you pretty much everything you need to know about the quality of it and the experience of drinking it. Um, and it really wasn't until the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, through the column still and the, the coffee still finally making its way to the Caribbean and really being embraced, that you saw rum starting to clean up and become refined and become much more in line with the rums that, that we think of and that we experience today. Um, what, were the, what were the things that we didn't really see in, in the United States in the 19th century? Well, vodka was one. Um, for, for various uh, cultural reasons, uh, it, it just wasn't uh, prevalent here yet. Uh, you just don't really find any kind of uh, uh, much interaction with it. Nor with tequila. I mean, on occasion you would find some reference to tequila, but it was usually um, in very negative terms. Uh, and so it was something that, that you just never really saw in the United States. That would eventually change, and we're gonna come to that in a little bit. But I wanted to, to, to put all this out there because this was the context in which the cocktail evolved. This was the context in which the cocktail was first created, came out of the punch bowl, crawled up on, on the shore, uh, and, and began its process of evolution through the 19th century and, and really hitting a full head of steam as it uh, approached the 20th century. Um, so I should have put, up that, put that up there earlier. If you want to tweet about this or Instagram, that's where to find this. But if you want to look at the homo erectus of the bar, um, you need to look at the basic cocktail. The brandy cocktail, this, this recipe is actually, the photograph I took was from an 1887 book, so, you, so you've already seen it develop a certain degree. When the cocktail first entered circulation nearly 100 years before, or a little over 80 years before, it was simply spirits, pick your, pick your spirit, whiskey, brandy, gin, what have you, uh, some sugar, some bitters, and some water. Uh, occasionally, the, or increasingly, the water is in the form of ice. Uh, by 1887, they'd spruced up a little bit with the addition of Curacao. And also, in 18, by 1887, you came up with what was considered the improved cocktail. What made it improved? Putting more stuff in it, basically. Um, it's, uh, but the, the, the core elements to look at here is this is almost entirely spirits. I mean, when it says a wine glass of brandy that's two ounces, everything else is in terms of dashes, drips and drabs. Um, so the spirit is basically the outfit that the cocktail is wearing, and the curacao, the bitters, the gum syrup are accessories. It's a pinky ring. Uh, it's, it's a handkerchief. It's, it's just little things that you're dangling off of the spirit to kind of smooth over some of the rough edges, maybe point up a couple of aspects of flavor and make it a little bit more delightful all the way around. Um, so this was you know, the, the early stages, the, the early signs of evolution. Two things happened. Also about this time, uh, starting 1850s, 1860s, and leading up into the 1870s, uh, where it really started to pick up steam. The first was, um, Citrus juice. This was not unusual. This is reaching directly back into the punch bowl and pulling out one of Booze's best friends. Um, you take whiskey, match it with lemon, wonderful. Brandy, mix it with lemon, wonderful. Rum, lime, wonderful. Um, it's, again, it soothes over some of those rough edges. It takes down the, al the alcohol percentage just a tad, so it makes it a little bit more agreeable, a little bit more approachable. And then you've got to put sugar in the mix in some form, whether it's directly as sugar or as a liqueur uh, or as a fruit syrup or pick some other application. And overall, that, it's just a wonderful experience to come around. The second important uh, element, and I, I think this is probably even more important, was the introduction of vermouth. Now, vermouth, um, of course, had been around for, for, for centuries. Um, it 
just had not really been fully appropriated into cocktails until really 1870s, 1880s is when you start saw it starting to happen uh, vigorously. Um, it, this recipe here is, is for the Manhattan cocktail, as you can see. The interesting thing, in case you haven't seen this recipe, again, this is 1887, the Jerry Thomas uh, Bartender's Guide, um, is it is one pony of rye whiskey, which is one ounce, and one wine glass of vermouth, which is two ounces. So it's two parts vermouth to one part whiskey, which is pretty much the reverse of any Manhattan you have ever had in your life, unless you're well, actually, unless you drink in this bar, in which case you probably encountered a drink like this uh, in the past. It's absolutely wonderful this way. This is absolutely a perfect drink. It's much lower octane than the Manhattans that you're, that you're uh, accustomed to encountering. But the reason I suggest this is a notable step in the evolution of cocktails uh, is because it brought a very flavor-packed ingredient to the equation. Again, an old-world ingredient. The, the vermouth that they're using here uh, is an Italian vermouth, a traditional Italian rosso, uh, which is a little bit sweet, a little bit bitter, very herbaceous, very full of character. Um, and it marked that kind of flavorful turning point. No longer is the spirit the main star of the show. No longer is that drink like the cocktail or like the improved cocktail defined solely by the spirit at its base. Now you have other flavors playing co-starring roles, playing very full roles uh, and really placing their characters into the DNA of the cocktail. Um, other influences that, that you had, of course, you know, I mentioned liqueurs earlier, um, you know, the, the kinds of sweeteners and the kinds of other accessories that, that would factor into, into drinks were things that were readily available or would, would not be unfamiliar in kitchens and bars of the time. Um, if you have a, a fresh fruit how, and, and you don't really have um, canning technology, how do, you, how do you preserve it? Well, sugar is one very efficient way of preserving a fruit make it into preserves uh, with some spirit, or excuse me, with some fruits such as raspberries or pineapples. Um, you can put that into syrup form. Works wonderfully. Take all the juice, take all the liquid out of that, mix it with sugar for a little preservative power, and it works wonderfully and, and goes amazing with pretty much any booze you want to throw at it. Um, some spirits, uh, or excuse me, some fruits work better going directly into the still. You can put apricots into a still, make a dry apricot brandy. You can also take those apricots, make it into a liqueur, and bring that flavor potential uh, into cocktails. And as we get into the later 19th century, 1870s, 1880s, and then really 1890s, oh my God, uh, that's when you really see these herbal liqueurs like chartreuse and benedictine, uh, fruit liqueurs like uh, curacao, um, uh, apricot liqueur really being embraced by bartenders. And really, sometimes you'd see liqueur upon liqueur. Uh, the drinks are obsessively sweet in some cases, but they have these incredibly Baroque flavors. I mean, it's, it's, everything is just off. So what year is this Manhattan cocktail recipe? This, this, the book that I, that I photographed this from is 1887. Okay. So Curacao and Maraschino were already common ingredients. They're already out there. Um, you know, they, they had been around uh, for, well, they had been in circulation in the United States for at least a couple of decades. I mean, I'm trying to re recall the, the furthest back I can remember a Curacao recipe coming around. It's, I want to say at least 1860. I know in, in the first Jerry Thomas guy, there, there's Curacao, and I'm reasonably certain there's Maraschino in there as well. I have to dig back through my brain a little bit, but I, I'm pretty sure. But yes, in, in, in 1887, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, the major urban centers that have had these, as well as um, some of the more happening smaller towns uh, across the country. Um, however, evolution isn't always orderly or predictable. 
Because as I said, you know, in the 1890s, things were going gangbusters in terms of cocktail evolution. We saw bartenders matching all different kinds of flavors together, all different kinds of ingredients, liqueurs, spirits from, uh, fr from throughout Europe and the United States. And everything seemed to be you know, just setting the stage for this amazing renaissance, uh, like this next stage of, of awakening in, in terms of cocktails. But then what happened? Well, three things, really. Uh, you had a world war, prohibition, and then another world war, uh, which is history's little way of throwing a wrench into everything. All of a sudden, our little experimentations in the cocktail world don't really matter that much. Um, when, you know, either when it's totally illegal or when uh, the bar's entire clientele are in the trenches in France. Um, so the first half of the 20th century was that time of cocktail chaos. Uh, yes, there were things going on. A lot of it was going on outside of the United States in places like Cuba uh, during Prohibition, uh, places like Paris, places like London. And certainly there's a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation going on in these stages. But in terms of the overall arc and trajectory of the cocktail, uh, the first half of the 20th century was a really tumultuous time. Uh, and while advances were made, really it was, it was um, uh, we're waiting for a resettling. And that resettling didn't really start happening until the mid 20th century. However, once that had happened, once the, once the war was over, once everybody was trying to get back to normal, if normal is the right word that you can apply to a time when nuclear Armageddon seemed imminent, um, then several things had changed within the cocktail sphere. First off, those two things that I, that I had mentioned earlier that were not really part of the earlier equation, vodka, all of a sudden vodka is available. Not only is vodka available, starting immediately after the Second World War and heading in the 1950s, vodka is like that, you know, kind of like oddity you're behind the bar, you know, that thing that somebody comes in and says, hey, did you see this new thing we just got? It's from Russia. Um, and you can try it out on somebody within decades, within roughly 25 years, vodka had passed not only gin, but it passed whiskey. that become the biggest spell selling spirit in the United States. Um, tequila, likewise. Uh, tequila, you hardly see any recipes from before 1950 for tequila. By the 1970s, it's picking up steam. By the close of the 20th century, the margarita is the top selling cocktail in the United States. There was this survey that was done by a guy named Jack Townsend, who was the president of the New York Bartenders Guild in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, they did a three-year survey of bartenders, largely in New York, but some from around the country, on the top cocktails that they mix and serve in their bars, which is a fascinating snapshot of what people were actually drinking, 1948, 1949, 1950, uh, around that time. Nowhere on that list is there a margarita. The Manhattan and the Martini are still at number one and number two. You have some weird little oddballs coming in there uh, in a couple of places, like the Dubonnet cocktail. You know, how that wound up in the top 50, I have no idea. Uh, but nowhere in there is, is something. It's awesome, but it's top 50? Come on. Um, <laughs> uh, but nowhere in there is a margarita or a vodka cocktail, for that matter. By the end of the 20th century, th these little puppies of the cocktail world had become the alpha dogs. They were, they were driving a lot of what was going on, definitely on the business point, uh, but uh, also on the cocktail point. One other aspect I want to touch on the late 20th century before I bring us up to, to what's going on now, and that is the food scientists. Um, prior to the wars, prior to prohibition, 
Um, aside from the occasional bit of kerosene in your whiskey, most of the, the ingredients you're encountering from, that you're encountering in the bar were relatively natural. Um, if, if, uh, if a recipe called for pineapple, actual pineapples went into it, or pineapple juice, or pineapple syrup, or something that can be traced back to a pineapple. Uh, same goes for raspberries. It largely came that way. After the Second World War, that all changed. You had companies uh, introducing their um, cocktail mixes, um, their rapid fixes, uh, imitation flavors, imitation ingredients, and really this became a uh, primary factor, not only in the home bars. I mean, this is a uh, New York Times article from 1960, sales booming for mix maker, they're referring to Holland House. Uh, increase in entertaining at home proves boon for the Holland House, but also, in the bars themselves, you saw a pre-mix, sour mix, uh, soda guns, things of that nature that became those kind of shortcuts, uh, those, uh, those efficiency measures that really kind of tamped down the quality of the drinks that we were encountering. Um, actually, one thing I was trying to get a color photo of this advertisement that I saw and just could not get it to come out right. It's from the New Yorker in 1959, also for Holland House. Not to beat up Holland House too much, but come on, they kind of deserve it. Um, it was for a martini mix uh, from Holland House. It said, simply add your favorite gin or vodka and you've got a martini. What the hell is in the bottle? <laughs> they don't even call it vermouth. Uh, instead, it's some kind of flavor component, flavor composition that they put together to sell you instead of vermouth for your martinis. So um, that was the stage that, that brought us up into the 20th century and to the first stirrings really of, well, of when I came in uh, 10 or 12 years ago where we were starting to see that shift away from that and towards things like this. Um, evolution is a funny thing. Uh, ever since Darwin first floated the idea, evolutionary biology had always been believed to occur, to occur at such a slow pace that you couldn't really observe it. You'd have to go back in a deep history, go into the fossil record to really understand and really witness the way things change, the way that evolutionary biology changes. That's not necessarily the case. Um, as was first demonstrated by uh, David Resnick, who was a uh, student and now a professor at UC Riverside, uh, starting in the 1970s and going in the 1980s, and some studies he did in Trinidad. Um, he was studying guppies, you know, the little fish that you had when you were a kid. Uh, and they would die very quickly, but you know you would always have more because they're guppies, they would just breed and make more. Um, he studied guppies in Trinidad and realized that rapid evolution is possible. We can witness uh, excuse me, we can witness evolution taking place um, in the course of a few generations, which for guppies is really about four years. Folks, we live in the age of the bibulous guppy. Um, evolution is taking place at such an unprecedented level in the cocktail bar now that we live in a really remarkable time. Um, the, we have a boom of product availability, availability and styles. We have access to things that um, either had been, um, well, inaccessible uh, in the past or e even unmade. Fl new flavors, new ingredients are coming into our, uh, into our bars. Our global transport system can now accommodate an appetite for French brandy in China or for Italian Amari in San Francisco. Uh, and really kind of support that demand and that appetite as it roams around the world to this growing diaspora of cocktail bars uh, from San Francisco to Sydney to Seattle to London. Now, 
why is this going on? And then also looking at how is this going to take us into the future? Well, first off, we have to go back and look at those patterns from the past. Um, demographic, cultural, and economic shifts, for example. Um, some tastes spread independently, but others need a little bit of a push. I remember in my own lifetime as a kid, uh, a time when salsa was not in the refrigerator, when salsa was not a word that I knew. Um, it, was, it was just a flavor that we we're completely unfamiliar with. You know, the condiments in my refrigerator and my, you know, when I was a kid in the 1970s and early 80s uh, were ketchup, mayonnaise, and mustard. We've seen a shift in a couple of directions. First off, culturally, in terms of our tastes uh, for different things, there was a time, you know, 50 years ago, uh, when you might have tasted salsa and thought, oh, that's spicy, or ooh, that's weird, or oh my God, that's, you know, that's a totally alien thing to me, and I want nothing to, whatsoever to do with it. We no longer are like that, at least regarding salsa. Um, we, you know, our culture is shifting in a way where we're more inclined to, to experiment on a culinary basis, um, to explore the flavors of other, of other cultures, but also this kind of dovetails with this demographic shift in the United States, where we may have seen things like salsa or, uh, to use a boozy parallel, tequila, as these, you know, things from, from another country, things that are totally alien to us and to everything that we experience in our home and everything I've experienced in my life with the demographic shifts that lead to uh, a rise in uh, Latino culture in the United States, uh, kind of demystifies that, makes it more approachable, makes it more understandable. Plus, it helps that these things are, are damn delicious. Um, so as we take away those, la those layers of mystery uh, and those layers of the alien and the bizarre, we, they become much more approachable and they become part of our lives and part of our drinking lives in terms of tequila. Um, we also have economic changes that are, that are at play in terms of our current cocktail renaissance revolution. Um, you know, the cocktail surges at times of um, uh, economic booms. We have more disposable income uh, to, to let go of um, and spend in bars. Uh, and also, I mean, it should also be noted that, that drinking surges, if not necessarily bar income surges, uh, during periods of economic decline. Um, so really, people drink all the time. Uh, it just kind of helps that, that uh, our economic boom from um, recent years has helped drive this business in bars. Um, also, technologically, as, as I said earlier, you know, the, the spread of the steamship and of the transcontinental railroad made it easier to obtain ingredients. Today, it's... It is so easy to obtain information. I don't think the cocktail renaissance would be taking place if it weren't for the internet, or at least not on this kind of level. Um, we're sharing recipes, we're sharing flavor ideas, we're sharing uh, components, we're sharing information about making your own ingredients in the bars, and that's helping to drive this whole conversation and move things forward. Um, one other thing that's going on in our uh, drinking culture today, and our drink industry today, is the rise of craft distilling. We've had a tremendous boom in craft distilling. Roughly, uh, let's say at the turn of the 21st century, we had somewhere between 15 and 20 distilleries uh, operating in the United States that were making all, pretty much all of the, the booze that, that was uh, consumed, uh, or that was produced uh, in the United States. Um, in recent years, oops, I got two of those guys. Uh, here's a little bit better idea of what that looks like now. Um, those 15 distilleries were largely concentrated in Kentucky and Tennessee. Now we have this diaspora of distilling. It's uh, spread entirely across the country. It's in almost every state. Is it in every state? 
Do we have anybody in Oklahoma now? Any distillers in Oklahoma? I thought Oklahoma and North Dakota were like the two last holdouts. Um, uh, I know that there's distilleries in Alaska, and yeah, somebody's making rum in Hawaii. Yep, yep, so those are accounted for. Um, this is a better idea. I mean, we, we went from that uh, 15 at the turn of the 21st century to some estimates range license and operational to be more than 700 and probably closing in on the four-digit mark. Within the, uh, that's foreseeable within the next few years. Um, as that is spread, yeah. How does that compare to the growth in craft brewing? Um, that's a good question. Craft distilling has very much, in a lot of ways, followed previous trends in the boom of craft brewing starting in, what, the 60s, 70s, 80s uh, that really got underway and with, um, uh, with winemaking. I mean, winemaking is much more geographically limited, but in terms of numbers uh, of winemakers uh, getting into the game and participating in it, um, I think it kind of follows that, that in a very similar way. Um, the changes that we've seen really are, are legal changes um, that have made this possible. Um, states have realized that um, people yell when you tax them, but if you tax booze, then they don't yell quite as much. Um, so it's become an e easy, accessible avenue for, for uh, economic, uh, for, for tax income for state uh, governments. Um, and it's, you know, as you can see in places like Washington State, I live in Washington, um, we have passed the 100 distillers mark. Uh, that includes those with licenses, not yet up and up operational, but are moving towards that. And I think Colorado, uh, I know for a while we're going neck and neck with Colorado. Uh, we might be right about the same point. And New York, oh my God. Uh, you know, New York is just this cluster of red pens uh, over here uh, for everything that's going on there. What's going on in the booze world in these places? Everything. Thing. You have traditional uh, spirits like gins and vodkas, uh, rums being made with very much with an eye on what is traditional, what is familiar. Can we take those things that we've loved for years and make them just as good? Um, you know, more power to them to, to try that. We have the innovative. We have people, um, there's a distillery in New York who had been making spirits out of uh, fermented cacao nibs or cacao beans, however, uh, whatever the terminology is. You have uh, distillers in New York who are making liqueurs based on traditional Caribbean uh, home preparations. You have, um, you know, you have people who are very much trying to put a local stamp on it. And I'm going to touch on that a little bit more here in just a moment. I don't want to get sidetracked on my own talk, but actually, yeah, no, I'm going to do that. Um, speaking of local, one of the gins, there we go, one of the gins we had in one of the cocktails tonight from uh, St. George Spirits in Alameda, terroir gin. Uh, this is an example of taking something uber local and, and running with it. Um, you know, they, they wanted a California gin. Uh, they're using California Bay Laurel, Coastal Sage, Douglas Fir, to kind of produce that kind of aroma and that kind of flavor that is uh, evocative of Northern California. You're seeing, you know, St. George does a wonderful job at it. They're, they're one of many who are following that similar path, whether it's with gin uh, or with whiskey or with brandies, trying to do something that is very much evocative of the local. Um, another example, this is Westland Distilling in Seattle. Um, this isn't so much evocative to local. Westland Distilling just opened their doors a couple of years ago. They'd been in operation for a couple of years before that. They make only one thing, and that's single malt whiskey. Um, they make it from Washington barley. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of craft distillers work exclusively with uh, ingredients grown in their states, and that's you know both for you know drinking local reasons, but also for tax reasons plays into it. Um, what, this is Matt Hoffman, the distiller at Westland. What Matt is holding is peat. Um, they're 
smoking some of their barley using peat. Um, the whiskey he's making with this peat is not yet on the market, but will be, I don't know, in a couple of years. This peat is not from Scotland, however. Um, you're familiar, should be familiar with the peat smoked whiskeys from Isla. Um, this peat bog that they dug this from is on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. Um, they found a naturally occurring peat bog, and they're going to smoke their Washington barley over it and make, uh, hopefully, wonderful Washington whiskey uh, that has very much that local aspect to it, but plays in that larger, familiar kind of global flavors uh, that we've come across. Um, and the, the stills I showed you a couple of, that's, that's Westland stills, uh, just so you get an idea of what their operation looks like. Um, so, <clears throat> Oh, also on the technological front, you know, I'd mentioned uh, how the internet had played into the to the expansion of the cocktail renaissance and the cocktail revolution. Um, other technologies at play in terms of cocktails themselves. Um, we have uh, bars and bartenders who are reappropriating reappropriating uh, old technology, something like barrel aging, which of course is old hat when it comes to making brandy or making whiskey. And instead of applying that to cocktails, you know, stick your Negroni in a barrel, come back in three months, hey, it's a barrel aged Negroni. Um, doing that with a number of different cocktails across the spectrum. But also, um, you have uh, bartenders and food scientists, the, like the good kind that we like, uh, who are playing around with technologies familiar to other parts of, of the world, you know, whether it's medical technology or scientific technology, and incorporating that into a cocktail uh, scheme. Uh, here's one, this is a centrifusion motion. There it is, stop. It's uh, clarifying citrus juice. I know, I believe you guys do that here, or at least some of your stuff. This is actually at Canon in Seattle uh, that the photos come from for a clarified uh, lime juice. Um, you know, we're at a time now where the James Beard Award winning book for, for drinks this year was Liquid Intelligence, a book that delves into all different kinds of aspects relating to uh, clarification, uh, cold distillation, use of liquid nitrogen in cocktails, um, all kinds of of uh, modernist cuisine technologies being brought to the realm of the cocktail bar. So this is where we are now. Um, the star of cocktail cre creativity has gone supernova at this point. The question now is where is this gonna go? You know, how, how, is this, how is this gonna play out? And this is where that crystal ball I did not order on Amazon would have come in handy or maybe not. Um, you know, predictions have uh, a tendency to, to not become true. You know, there were predictions in the 19th century that uh, New York City would be uninhabitable by the mid 20th century because it would be buried in horse manure. Uh, and as we all know, that didn't happen until the 1970s. Um, or it could be, you know, you would have those uh, matters of whimsy, you know, the whimsy of fate. Um, things like the First World War a century ago that came along and said, oh, you think life is going to be this way? No, it's not. We're going in a completely different direction. You know, last week, everybody was talking online uh, about this mysterious object orbiting a star 1,500 light years from here, how it could actually be a Dyson sphere, you know, uh, some kind of uh, uh, array set up by, by another uh, civilization, another intelligence, another planet. So who knows? The, that Death Star could be heading this way in the, in the course of the next century, in which case any predictions I give out now uh, are going to be totally crap. Uh, and then also, there are those things where of short-sightedness. Um, you know, the guys who came up with Bartles and James wine coolers, I'm sure that they thought that this was going to last for decades. Um, whereas all of the things that we do with cocktails now, all the things that we enjoy so much, that we play around with, with so much, there could come a time when the drinking public just goes, eh, it's gone too far. I'd rather have a beer can happen. It's happened before, could happen again. Um, with that in mind, with those, with those um, 
remarks in mind. Here's where we kind of see the trajectory of the cocktail going. Uh, best guesses and backed up with a few facts here and there. I think the cocktail of the future will be hyper-global. Um, our increasingly globalized economy means nothing is off the table. At a time, um, you know, in the 19th century where we saw this heavy influence of European flavors, European ingredients in the bar, I think the 21st century and, and heading toward the 22nd uh, is going to see flavors from other parts of, the, parts of the world increasingly showing up in the bar. We're already seeing that when you look at uh, ingredients and flavors from Central America. Um, go to any self-respecting tequila bar or mezcal bar and you are gonna see flavors and ingredients um, that uh, draw heavily on uh, those cultures and that nation and those cultures. I think South America. Uh, South America is really going to start to come to shine for a couple of reasons. I'll get to a little bit more detail into that. But I think Peru is already kind of pushing that out there in terms of culinary approaches, and the Pisco culture is going to start coming a little bit more. And similarly, Asia. Um, you know, Baijiu is still kind of like one of the, you know, Baijiu is where vodka was 60 years ago, kind of like that weird oddity behind the bar. The difference is vodka is, you know, technically color colorless and odorless. Baijiu is not. It may be colorless, but it's not odorless, not flavorless. Um, it carries a very uh, kind of gamey character to it. So I'm not sure it will really catch on in that same way. But, you know, who knows? Um, as demographic shifts come and as everything, other things come, um, that could definitely be on the table. Also, in addition to being hyper-global, here's the other side of that paradox. I think cocktails of the future, of the future will be hyper-local. As we're already seeing with like the example from St. George Spirits uh, or from uh, Westland Distilling, craft distilling is really at play here. And this is where craft distilling is really gonna be showing up along with uh, the, the influence of restaurant kitchens and of chefs of looking increasingly local, not only at farms in their immediate vicinity, but at producing it while growing their own produce. Um, <clears throat> I think for a number of reasons that that direction is going to continue. And so that hyper-local aspect uh, in craft distilling in terms of, you know, not only working with peat that's local, but, but where you'll see uh, localized brandies. You know, um, it used to be, you know, we're going back to kind of those old models from early 19th century. Distillers uh, in Georgia, what would you make? Well, you'd make peach brandy because that was what you grew there. Um, I live, you know, I live in Washington State. We're starting to see apple brandies starting to come out some craft from craft distillers now. Um, other parts of the country, you know, you're seeing, um, uh, I've seen cherry spirits from Michigan, uh, apple brandies from Michigan. New York uh, has been playing with heirloom corn and with apple varieties as well. We're going to see these localized aspects uh, to the spirits world starting to come out and increasingly in circulation and getting those kind of local touches, uh, hyper-local touches into, uh, into spirits. Also, I think whiskey is going to be an interesting category to watch because um, as we've seen in Scotland, you have the possibility for this vast array of similar yet distinct styles uh, arising in a relatively small geographic uh, realm. In the United States, is a much larger geographic realm, and we have whiskey distilleries operating everywhere from Washington to Florida. Um, 
the key factor here is not just the grain that's going in there, although that is a big thing, but also the maturation. Whiskey maturation is heavily influenced by temperature, by humidity, by things that range all across the spectrum from like the guys at Westland I showed you who are, age, who are aging their whiskey um, uh, in the very wet, very cool environment of the Olympic Peninsula to uh, Garrison Brothers in Texas, which is aging his, tics, his, his whiskey in a barn uh, in Texas in the summer where the temperatures regularly get up to 120 degrees on his farm. So you see these really diverse um, influences that are coming into whiskey distillers all across the country. And that's gonna be one of those places where the hyper-local really starts to come out to play. Um, I think also in the local aspect, we're gonna see the greater farm connection. Um, we're already seeing stirrings of this in places like New York State or, or like Michigan, which I uh, mentioned as an example uh, of working legally on a legal basis uh, to open up farm distilling once again, taking back those patterns that we'd established 200 years ago and reincorporating them uh, into our contemporary legal framework. So that a farmer who, uh, say you raise apples, um, you don't sell all of your apples, you can sell some for, for cider, but you can also hang on to some of it and send it to your neighbor down the road who is running a still, or have, maybe you have a farmer's co-op still uh, for all of the, the fruit in the area. Um, you know, very much like uh, the distillers uh, in Gascony for making Armagnac, uh, having that, that kind of model coming up very small scale, but very localized. And that's not just in the US where you're seeing that. You're seeing uh, in Germany, there's a distiller that's making a gin with Black Forest Botanicals, uh, which is a hyper-local kind of flavor and tastes very kind of Hansel and Gretel. Um, Technologically, we're also going to be see, seeing uh, greater refinement in terms of the spirits themselves. I mean, just as the coffee still added that um, layer of finesse, uh, of, uh, of uh, provided distillers with a tool where they can make very clean, very pure spirits at a very high, high quality uh, and a very high quantity. Um, improvements in distillation technology today uh, and in, in the years to come will give distillers greater tools for making higher proof spirits, uh, things with greater delicacy, greater finesse, uh, and just have much more control over the process. Um, Similarly, refinements in cocktail technique are going to become cheaper and more widely available. Um, things like the, uh, you know, the, the centrifuge here. Um, you know, th this is a, I, I think Jamie told me he paid ten to $15,000 uh, for this piece of equipment. Um, so it's definitely not going to be in every bar, but some pieces of equipment are going to become much more affordable, much more approachable. And even if it's not on an individual bar basis, we're starting to see commissaries. You know, as, uh, for example, in Portland, Oregon, there's a place called, obviously, the commissary um, that functions as a... Um, a place for bars and for consumers to go get your citrus juices, your homemade syrups, um, any of a number of familiar ingredients that come to play in cocktail bars. An individual bar may not be able to drop 10 to 15 grand on a centrifuge, but a commissary that serves 15 or 20 bars in a city could. Uh, and, and could provide this on a bulk basis. So we can see some of these higher technologies becoming a little bit more available uh, or a little bit more accessible. Um, and also in terms of the, the tools themselves. Um, Don Lee and Cocktail Kingdom have been reassessing some of the historic bar tools that we've used that really haven't changed, in some cases, all that much over the course of 100 years and are reassessing them from a design and from a function standpoint to make them more usable, more utilitarian for, for uh, bartenders. Um, couple of quick things, because I'm almost out of time, but there are 
couple of big things. Those things that happen outside the bar that are really not a function of what we do here, but that are going to very much determine and dictate how we drink and what we drink 100 years from now. One of them is a demographic shift and population gains. Census projections for 2100 uh, estimate that the US population will be anywhere between 300 million, which is about where we are now, and 1.2 billion. Um, the mid-range estimate, which is like the, you know, where they're kind of saying, yeah, we're reasonably certain this might be more likely, is around 600 million, about twice what we are now, and past the half billion threshold. Um, and obviously immigration is part of that equation, and that's going to continue to influence the types of things that we're exposed to and the types of flavors and the types of ingredients that we come across. But it's also going to put stresses and strains on things such as water availability. I, I mean, population overall, not just immigration, uh, on things like water availability, the cost of, uh, of raw materials, and, uh, and, and available cropland. Um, so I got to condense a little because I'm running over. Um, so a couple of things. Internationally, Tequila and mezcal, uh, how much is this going to be a part of our future? Obviously, you know, if we continue on the trajectory that we've been on, Latino culture and the Latino population in the United States are going to continue to increase. People obviously love tequila, love mezcal, but I have to say tequila and mezcal are in our future with an asterisk. And the asterisk is uh, management. Uh, tequila is an intensive monoculture crop. Um, it takes a very long time for the agave to mature. Uh, eight to 10 years for, a, for an agave to mature. With that kind of growing conditions and that kind of lack of restrictions uh, to, um, uh, to imposing some kind of genetic diversity or some kind of uh, risk uh, uh, abatement protocol, agave might hit that kind of speed bump where you see long, uh, massive crop failures. And a crop failure in agave is something that doesn't just resonate you know, for one year, like you, know, uh, you had a bad year for grapes. Okay, the wines that year suck. Uh, the next year it'll pick up again. No, agave, it's gonna take years for that to be replaced. So agave is one of those where I, I see that with an asterisk. Brandy is, is one of those things, you know, brandy is largely a first world spirit in terms of production, mainly France, mainly uh, Spain, mainly the United States. Um, we're places where it's just much more expensive to make that spirit and the agricultural inputs going into it are similarly much more expensive than any other kind of spirit out there. So while I'm sure that brandy will always be available, I'm not sure how much it's gonna play a role in the air cocktails of the future. Um, and of course, the, uh, the big bugbear here, the giant pumpkin in the room is climate change. Um, what is this gonna mean, not only in terms of water availability and of our ability to, to even live much the way that we do now, what is it gonna mean in terms of population trends, availability of water, raw materials, maturation? Um, well, let's look at wine first off. Um, a Conservation International study uh, placed projections for wine were very bad for much of Europe, California, uh, South Africa, Australia. Uh, however, you might start seeing wines and brandies from Sweden uh, or from Montana or from Canada uh, because that's where the prime grape growing regions are going to be migrating uh, according to uh, some climate change uh, uh, examples uh, that they've played through. Wine, you know, what happens in wine happens in brandy. And the, the grape varietals that thrive now in places like France or California may not be the same grape varietals that thrive 100 years from now in these much different places. So if we were to do that, uh, you know, make your, um, uh, you know, save things for, for the drinkers from a century from now to, to come back to, I think brandy would be one of those things to, to reassess. Um, 
the other thing is whiskey. You know, wh whiskey, we're talking about maturation conditions and the influence that it has. Um, temperature and humidity play a massive role in your evaporation uh, and in the flavor of your whiskey. Distillers like Buffalo Trace in Kentucky, one of the larger distilleries in Kentucky, um, created uh, what they call Warehouse X. And this is their experimental aging warehouse uh, in, uh, in Frankfort, Kentucky, where they can test whiskey barrels on a number of different factors to see um, what kinds of conditions they react to. Some of the barrels are exposed to the elements. Some of them are completely in uh, temperature and humidity controlled rooms so that we can try to assess how can we age whiskey, how can we keep whiskey tasting like the way it does now, even as our global climate changes. So whiskey is gonna be another one of those things where it's kind of a moving target flavor-wise and composition-wise looking into the future. Um, actually, that previous slide, I just wanna say this is a vineyard um, in uh, San Juan Batista. It's, uh, I'm gonna mispronounce this, Popolutium. Uh, from Randall Graham at Bonnie Dune. This is a massive project. He just launched from Kickstarter maybe six months ago. Um, it's gonna be a huge experiment on the wine basis to find the kinds of grapes that will create not only a new world um, uh, style of wine, a uniquely, distinctly new world style of wine, but he's also not gonna be using irrigation. Gonna be looking at what kinds of grapes thrive and survive in a drier, hotter climate. Uh, so that's that's part of the, the goal there. Um, really, the winner, I think, in terms of the, the booze going into your glass in 100 years, is going to be sugarcane. Um, sugarcane likes it hot. Sugarcane likes it wet. It likes tropical climates. Um, you know... <laughs> And, yeah, and, and there was actually a uh, study that was presented at a sugar conference uh, about two years ago that actually showed sugar, sugar cane yields increasing uh, as a result of the projections they've done with, with climate change. So this, this could be something where the range actually expands. Matured rum, aged rum, you know, again, you're under the same kinds of conditions uh, regarding heat and humidity and time. So that's gonna be a crapshoot. So really, unaged rum, rum products like uh, uh, Rum Agricole from Martinique um, or uh, Cachaça from Brazil. Cachaça might be the thing to keep your eye on uh, 100 years from now. That could be something where not only do we have that kind of um, uh, thing that's readily available, but sugarcane and rum and by extension Cachaça are those things that are, that are readily accessible. They're not alien, they're familiar to us. Um, as drinkers, we have encountered rum before. We know what they're like. It's not Latino, it's not American, but somehow it's a little bit of both. Um, and it crosses socioeconomic lines. It's not a poor person's drink. It's not a rich person's drink like brandy. It's something that goes into all of our glasses. So if you're at a wager, if you're gonna go out and put futures on something, uh, they're gonna be drinking 100, 100 years from now, rum and uh, cachaça is pre pretty much where that's gonna be. So wrapping it up, um, 21.15, what's your bar look like? Uh, well, it's gonna be a rum bar in all likelihood. Um, you'll have lots of other things, probably some hyper-local things, some, um, uh, some things from around the world, uh, but uh, ice might be a little bit hard to come by, but um, really your rum drinks are gonna be awesome. You'll have some technical aspects. You can use your clarified lime juice from your centrifuge uh, that you've gone into a co-op with with uh, the other bar owners. But ultimately, you know what I think the, the drinks from 100 years are gonna look like? Pretty much like what you're drinking now. Um, the drinks that we're drinking now are pretty much like what people were drinking 100 years ago. Um, for a simple, basic reason, some things just taste good. Deliciousness will always win. 
Um, you can introduce your centrifuge. You can introduce your locally distilled product from the stuff that you grew up on the roof. If it tastes like crap, nobody's going to order it. Um, certain flavors we will always love. And I think we'll always come back to those. And uh, so in, in our time capsule, we'll just put their bourbon brandy. And since I, I've literally done talks and forgotten to mention it, uh, I'd stick my book in there because you need some ideas from, for where to go. So that's it. I'm done. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.